Stand by, everyone. Cueing music in three, two, and one. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio, conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. With tonight's host, Jeff Hendler. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Hendler. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. And we're back for another conversation with The Keeper. If this is your first time listening, I'm speaking with the Keeper of Soul's Purpose, whose purpose is to give the rest of us our purpose on this journey as humans. Sound a bit crazy? Perhaps. So you may want to catch up on this series by listening to our past conversations, available at www.thevoiceofevolution.com. And just a reminder, there's no calling in or chat for these programs at the Keeper's request. And you can always reach out to me or our producer, Linda, for more information. And as that's the only introduction possible, I'm just going to bring him on the air. Welcome, Keeper. Thank you, Jeff. I'm just going to jump right in here because I know that each time we speak, you usually have a topic in mind. And this time, well, I was thinking... Yes. And what would you like to talk about this time? Well, Keeper, it occurred to me that we've never talked about the origins of Earth. I know we've talked about life itself, that it doesn't begin or end, that everything is energy. And yet I know that there had to be some kind of a beginning for our planet in the solar system that they've evolved over time. I was wondering if I could convince you to talk about that today. You could try. Well, okay then. <laughs> I'm curious to know how Earth came to be our home out of all the planets in the solar systems. What is it about this planet Earth, you know? I think there are a lot of perspectives to explore, the science, the spiritual or sacred, even the religious. Actually, it's a good topic for our conversation today. I have things to share with you and the listeners today about the story of Earth through the three lenses, of course. Great. And the three lenses, that's the human-soul connection, the environment, and evolution. I know I'd appreciate hearing what you have to say about that, and if I'm still the pulse of the listener, I think they would appreciate it as well. Well, then perhaps we were meant to go there today after all, Jeff. Never underestimate the synchronicity of all that exists without explanation. I also believe it's an essential part of this perspective that I've been trying to share all along, so I'll try to tell the story well, with both factual and entertainment value. (laughs) Good. Let me think about where to begin. Um, hmm. Ah, here's a good starting place. I wonder, Jeff, have you ever planted a garden? Yeah, a garden? I have, and I'm sure the listeners have too. Well, then you've probably experienced something coming up in your garden and you've wondered, what's that? Did I plant that? (laughs) Yes, I've been there. More than once, actually. And what did you do about it? Well, sometimes I just let it grow and, you know, I hope I can identify it later. And sometimes I pulled it out because, you know, it just looked like a weed to me. Uh, Wait, Keeper, are you suggesting that the earth was a weed in the garden? Well, I am suggesting that often we're unsure about what's ahead of us in life or in the universe itself. And letting something grow is often the only way to see what it might turn out to be. Aha. We think we know where something's headed and we really never do. Exactly. So the garden is a reminder of what we've been calling the variables in the second lens, the environment. That's right. It's the principle of the second lens and something to keep in mind as we talk. So in this case, the weed in the garden turned out to be a planet we call Earth, with a species we call human, or at least some kind of life, because I know there was life before humans came along. Well, let's say that the elements of life came up, because that's a more accurate statement, especially now that you've got the image of the garden and its unpredictability. So the elements of life came up. 
Uh, Shall I proceed or is there more? Well, there is one more thing, Keeper. Uh, a request, actually. Maybe you could take it a bit further back in time and talk about the origins of the universe, you know, the infamous Big Bang. Well, I suppose we could take it back a few billion years or so. Hmm. Then let me say it this way. Imagine that the universe was an egg, a singularity containing everything. And when you say everything... Everything, Jeff. When you ask me to speak of the Big Bang, that's what you're asking. Now imagine a bomb going off inside the egg, and the egg explodes, flinging its everything everywhere. Now that's the simplest way to describe the Big Bang. I've got this image of my microwave after an egg's exploded. <laughs> yes, that's it. You use the word singularity. Can you define that for us? Isn't that how we describe the center of a black hole, a point of infinite density and heat? Well, there you go, Jeff. You've described it perfectly yourself. So in the beginning, or was there another beginning? Well, you asked me to describe the Big Bang, and I have. And now I'd like to talk about the Earth, if I may. Okay, I get it. Some things aren't meant for us to know, right? Well, not yet, anyway. So if I may, I'll begin with a planetary event. I'm sure you're aware that Earth is an amalgamation of two different planets. You know, now that you mention it, I remember seeing a program about that on one of those channels, uh, like National Geographic or the Weather Channel. I don't remember which. What I do remember is that Earth was hit by another planet or asteroid, maybe, ages ago, and a piece of Earth broke off, got caught in our gravitational pull, and that piece became our moon. And we've only been able to confirm that since we've been able to go to the moon and study it. Yes, being able to actually record data about the moon significantly changed your speculation about the moon. Now, understand that there are collisions in space all the time. This planet experienced some incredible storms of asteroids in the past. It was bombarded by them, actually. But it was a very special sequence of events that created Earth and the potential for life on Earth. Is this still the science part of it? Well, for the moment, yes. It began with a planet called Theia, traveling across your solar system at an incredible speed. Yes, Theia. That's it. Theia was on a collision course with a fledgling planet. It was a violent collision, a head-on collision, as you humans say, which was much more violent than anticipated. And the force of that collision literally drove Theia into the core of the fledgling planet. When that impact occurred, a piece of fledgling planet broke off into space. And that break resulted in the formation of a small planetary body that you, to get your point earlier, got caught in the planet's gravitational pull. It became your moon, and it's made of the same material as the original fledgling planet, because it literally is a piece of that planet. So that would be what you call a variable, right? The collision, I mean. Not that it happened, but the force of the impact? Well, yes, the force was the variable. Consider what might have happened if it had merely grazed the planet or missed it entirely. But it was clear at the time that it would be a direct hit. That collision combined elements of both planets that separately did nothing, but together would ultimately create the potential conditions for life. So if I've got this right, the ingredients necessary for human life, or any life, were a result of this collision. Yes, but not right away. Earth was a blazing ball of molten lava until it cooled and formed a crust. The core of the planet is still molten lava with millions of underground caverns below the surface. Is that still Theia at our core? Well, it's difficult to say which is which anymore. Your scientists believe that Theia was destroyed on impact. And yet we know that the matter that was Theia is somewhere. It can't be destroyed. Now, as these underground caverns cooled, life forms began, encouraged by the remaining more tolerable heat. And those caverns still sometimes reveal themselves as what I think you call sinkholes, yes? 
Yes, sinkholes. The ground just collapses and swallows whatever is above it. Buildings and roads, they're all over the place. Yes, some caverns are more porous than others. They're especially prone to create these sinkholes that you experience. Although human demand for water is creating more and more of these dangerous, unstable underground conditions as well. And you need to be aware of that. But getting back to natural instability, many of your mountains are the result of ancient sinkholes too. How are mountains? I mean, how is that possible? Well, they're what's left of the original terrain, tectonic plates that also played a part, of course, in glacial movement. But when you consider, for example, the tower karsts of China, those mountains didn't rise. The earth sank around them. Unbelievable. Now that I didn't know. I imagine it's a humbling experience to look up and realize that if not for these sinkholes, you'd be standing another 300 meters higher on earth. That up there was the ground at one time. Oh, well, I've digressed, but it does shift perspective, doesn't it? Well, my point was that Earth was incapable of sustaining any kind of complex life under those early conditions. Keeper, this all sounds very scientific, not at all spiritual or sacred. I mean, is that coming or am I missing something? Perhaps you're making the assumption that science and the sacred are not connected. There is a way things develop and progress in all that exists without explanation, and it's based on what you call scientific principles. Fibonacci spiral and sequence, for example, are you familiar with that? Yes, the golden ratio. It's found in nature, art, science, and humans too. In our inner ear and our fingers, for example. Well, and a lot more, Jeff, actually. The human form itself, for example, the, the distance from the head to the fingertips and the width of the shoulders, the length of the forearm and the shin bone, the distance from your head to the base of your skull. Even your heartbeat is part of the divine sequence. It's your architectural reference for biological existence within the universe as you know it. And that it exists at all. I guess that's the sacred. Or is that the science again? You know, it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? Well, that any of this exists at all, Jeff, it's certainly the sacred. Let me ask you and humanity. Was the collision of Theia and Earth planned? Was Earth's moon created for a purpose? And sinkholes, what about them? All this and more is the sacred. What or who created this initial collision created a grand event in the infinite of time and space. The alchemy of Theia and what would become Earth was a powerful and important catalyst for the shape of things to come. So planned. It was planned. Is that what you're saying? Planned because it happened. Do you understand? I do. Well, at least I think I'm following your meaning. Still all sounds a bit random, though. I mean, what if even one thing went wrong? Well, then it would be a different story I'd be telling you today. If either of us were here to have this conversation, that is. And I have to keep asking, who's to say what's random? The planets did what they couldn't do on their own, each possessing elements that together created the opportunity for life. I'll wager that at the time, meteorites bombarding Earth would have felt a lot like a thing gone wrong if humans were around to experience it. And yet that bombardment was essential for what was to come next. Unless they weren't, you understand? You're reminding me of the mystery of it all, so thank you for that, Keeper. It's about peeling back the layers of the onion, only to find more layers. Yes, Jeff, that's it exactly. And if you did peel away the layers and find the center, well, humanity isn't quite ready to know what to do with that yet. So be as grateful for the layers as you can. Now there's a perspective. Okay. You know, Keeper, when you say that there were two planets doing what each couldn't do on its own, each possessing elements that together would create life, that sounds a lot like procreation. I mean, is that by design? Oh, yes. There's nothing random about that, by the way. The concept of Thayer and Earth is very much like what procreation is for you humans, and for other species too. 
let's not forget the billions of other species. Wait, 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 wait a second, Keeper. I mean, is that why we refer to it as the Big Bang? And if so, let me tell you, I'm pausing to appreciate the sacredness of that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so we really can't say what was planned or unplanned, a variable. That's the sacred too, the mystery of it all. And rightly so. So getting back to Earth and life, Earth wasn't ready for life after the planned or unplanned big, yet not the Big Bang. What then? Well, that was quite a statement, Jeff. Yeah, well, it wasn't easy, believe me. To answer your question, the Earth took millions of years to cool and crust over and become what you see as solid planets again. So there was finally a crust. Oh, yes. It was a rough, rocky terrain at the beginning. And water? Oh, no. No water at all at that time. No water? Then, then where did all the water come from? Weather? Ah, well, weather evolved eventually, but back at the beginning, water came from a most interesting source that I've actually already referred to today. As the planet cooled and formed its crust, it once again came under attack. This time, massive meteorite storms that lasted hundreds of millions of years that bombarded the Earth and its neighboring planets. This time is known to you as the late heavy bombardment, Jeff, and your listeners can look that up if they want. What you might not know is that those meteorites contain water. So to recap, make sure I'm following here, these meteorites brought water to our planet. Well, water and salt crystals, yes. Can you imagine how many meteorites it took? And the length of time it took to create your oceans and rivers and lakes? It's really unbelievable when you think about what it took to create Earth as we know it. Well, even then, it wasn't the Earth as you know it. Let me ask this. Where do the stories that many of us learned in our religious instruction come from? Was it that we just didn't have the science available to us when those stories were created, or, or was it something else? Ah, we all have our stories, Jeff. And who's to say that each story told about creation isn't coming from the one story about creation, that egg that exploded, yes? Remember, organized religion tells its story from a human perspective, because it only exists if humans believe in it. And it's a very human story told about an omnipotent God. So it became a story about a fall from grace, leaving humans to get back into God's good graces. Science tells the story from the scientific perspective because science requires research and a certain expectation of a natural underlying order of things. I tell the story from all that exists without explanation, because that's how I know it to be written, and it includes the three lenses, the human-soul connection and the environment and the evolution. It's the same story, really. Like the six blind men and the elephant. You know that one? The six blind men and the elephant? Yeah, I think I've heard that one. Go ahead and tell it anyway. Well, I'll spare you the story and go right to the punchline, as you humans say. That's it, right? To, to the punchline? <laughs> if you're going to tell me the ending of the story without the story itself, then yes. Well, no, I'm going to tell you the story, but without the details. Oh, then you're going to cut to the chase. The chase? Yeah. <sighs> Complexity of human language. That's a lot coming from you, Keeper. Yes, I suppose it is. At any rate, I'll cut to the chase and say six blind men all go off to meet an elephant because they've never experienced one before. Each one touches a different part of the elephant. One touches the side of the elephant and believes that the elephant must be like a wall. Another one touches the tusk and believes it just like a spear. Yet another touches the trunk and believes it to be like a snake, and so on. Cutting to the chase, the knee is a tree trunk, the ear is a large fan, and the tail of the elephant is a rope. So each got the part they touched, but not the whole elephant. 
and no one has the whole story when it comes to creation. Needing to be that right about something so mysterious is symptomatic of living in fear of the fact that somebody else could be more right than you are. There's no room in the heart of somebody who absolutely believes in the absolute. A closed mind and a closed heart. Only touching one part of the elephant. I, I get it. Keeper, you've shared the scientific explanation about the creation of Earth. Can we go back to the sacred for a moment? Was there something about Earth or Thea that made them the ones that were part of this evolution? If evolution is the right word. Well, it's certainly a good word, Jeff. I would like to make this easy to understand, but I'm not sure I can with all its complexity. Hmm. Let me just repeat that there was a collision that created Earth and a moon and the elements of life. And before that, there was a planetary embryo and a fledgling planet, neither of which could sustain or create life individually. There are collisions in space all the time, creating all kinds of things, as you probably know, and destroying things too. But have other collisions created the elements for life? Oh yes, all the time. But life, or at least its elements. Are you telling me that there's other life out there in the universe? There's life everywhere, Jeff. There's always a cycle of life and death in the universe. All that energy that exists in, say, a star, that has to go somewhere, and it comes from somewhere, as well as the physical properties of the star. Thea may well have been a remnant of the death of something, traveling through space and time for billions of years, until it found itself on a trajectory course that directly impacted Earth. But not everything is big like Thea. There's stardust everywhere created from the collisions and explosions within the universe. It's found throughout the universe and it helps shape everything. Think of it like the elements in your soil or water because it's there too. Think of it like the human elements that you've added to the universe. Yes, and not always in a good way. I agree. And stardust does the same, most benevolently though, unlike the chemicals you create and ingest and discard. It may come from explosions that happened billions of years ago, only now reaching your planet or another planet in your solar system or another solar system. This energy, these elements are what create and support the potential for life. And connect us all as one living universe. It's that egg you spoke of. Yes, I'm pleased to see you see that connection. So we're stardust. Well, as well as the energy that's released from the stars and planets as they're born or die, and this is really important for our conversation today, Jeff. And there is other life throughout the universe, created the same way we've been created. Uh, yes, but not always with the same elements. You are carbon elements, and many other things too, of course. Humans only became possible when there was a specific balance of elements on Earth and in Earth's atmosphere. And that doesn't mean that life on other planets doesn't exist. It just might be very different. Keeper, can you say more about these other life forms and planets? I mean, where are they? What do they look like? Would they even sustain human life? All I can say, Jeff, is that you humans are not alone in the vastness of space. To tell more than that might tip the environmental or evolutionary process. And that's not a variable I choose to create at this time. All right, uh, then can you answer this for me? Will we ever know about those other life forms? Will we ever find them? You gotta understand, this is, a, this is a big question for us humans. One day you will find them, and some of them will find you. You've got to be ready for that, and you're not there yet, even though your egos believe you are. For example, you still haven't mastered coexistence with each other yet, have you? That feels like an exclusive about life on other planets, Keeper. And you said it as if you didn't just give away the biggest secret in the universe. It's not a secret. 
I mean, there are always choices made about what humans, especially those in power and control, can share with each other. Let's just say that life on other planets and in other solar systems isn't the big surprise you think it is, unless you're not one of the humans in power and control. Now, why does that not surprise me? Jeff, I'm curious, your enthusiasm about life on other planets or sustainable planets in general, can you tell me what it is you're hoping for exactly? Hmm. You know, Keeper, sometimes you ask me these questions as if I have the answer for all of humanity. Like you, I can only answer from what I know. Mm, I understand that, Jeff. So what I know is there's been a lot of focus on finding alternatives to Earth, if Earth were to become uninhabitable. I also think we look to find answers about the origins of the universe. It's the mystery of how we got here, and it fascinates us. It's also the wondering about being the only life form in the universe that's so infinite. I mean, if I were to guess, those would be the three main reasons we seek to know more about other planets and life forms. I don't know if you realize it, Jeff, but you've actually just described the three lenses. First lens, understanding the source of the universe. The second lens, searching for other life forms. And then the third lens, seeking to evolve to new planets when Earth becomes uninhabitable. Uh, so wait, I said if. If Earth becomes uninhabitable, and you just said when. When it becomes uninhabitable. Did I hear that right? When you say, if Earth were to become uninhabitable, I wonder if you realize that one day Earth will become uninhabitable. Unless the laws of nature change, one day you'll need to leave this planet if you survive that long. You're going to say more about that, right? All living things eventually die, Jeff, and Earth is no exception. You have to remember that she is a living, breathing entity. The question remains as to how she dies. Will it happen naturally in billions of years when your sun becomes a red giant and burns itself out? Which realistically means taking Earth and its moon and many of its neighboring planets with it when it goes. And that's science, by the way. Or will she face the unnatural end as a result of humanity's excess and abuse? Therein lies the sacred. Okay, wow. Uh, Keeper, I'm going to ask that we talk more about all of this and right now. Not a deferred conversation. Are you seriously telling me that Earth is going to be destroyed by the sun one day? I can see this upsets you, but that's only because you think of everything as permanent. One day, Jeff, in five to seven billion years, give or take, your sun isn't an infinite source of energy, you know, and it's used up about half its energy in its current form. That's a searchable fact, by the way. But before that happens, understand that humanity has only about one billion years before the sun gets so hot it begins to boil your oceans and evaporate them. Water is life, Jeff. Without it, there is no life, at least not as you know it. And in addition to this natural order of things, humans are speeding up that process by burning fossil fuels and using chemicals that deplete the ozone layer. It's part of what you call climate change. This is a conversation we had a while ago about climate and human potential. Yes, and I guess I never really understood that regardless of what we do today, Earth isn't going to survive forever. I mean, where have I been? And yet she's here right now and so are you. You're a witness to her life, just as those who come after you may be witnesses to her death. When we talked about climate and human potential, I don't recall if I mentioned that on your current evolutionary path, your air will be irreparably changed in the next 84 years. And if that's all the breathable human air humans have left, how will you spend them? And that's science again, by the way. Your listeners can fact check the Keeling curve if they're curious. The Keeling curve. Thanks. So 84 years. I mean, what happens then? All of life on Earth dies if we can't turn that around in time? Oh, no. Not all life on Earth would die off. 
It's presumed that certain mosses would survive and some slime molds, at least the hardy ones, and some of the resilient bacteria and viruses, of course. Even some subspecies of sea slugs and jellyfish could probably withstand severe oxygen deprivation. You know, I feel absolutely deflated, Keeper. Actually, I don't, I don't know what I feel. This goes back to our conversation about the caterpillar and the chrysalis. You remember that? I mean, the fact that humans can't count on turning out like the butterfly. That success isn't a sure thing for us. And yet, I've got to say, I always assumed it would be. If you told me today that I could save the planet by changing how I live in the world, then I'd be all over it. I think other humans would too. But what I'm hearing you say is that even if we give our best efforts to save the planet, eventually, in a billion years, the sun's going to boil the oceans and everything that really matters is going to die. Everything that really matters, Jeff? Matters to whom? That's a poor choice of words, Keeper. Human life, other species. Hmm. Death is a difficult concept for humans, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. And the value of life is something that we don't take lightly, even if we don't always show it. I know that seems like a paradox, but it is true. Here's the thing. You say that death is a difficult concept for humans. I feel like I'm supposed to find comfort in the fact that we're really all souls and we all live on after human lives as energy or something else. But that's not how it works. I mean, losing Earth and its abundance of life, whales, birds, trees, and all the beauty of this world is, is just gone because the sun runs out of fuel. That's something I can't fathom right now. Even if you tell me it's going to be billions of years before it happens. And quite honestly, I don't even know why I'm reacting the way I am. I, I, I just can't accept that. I really thought you understood, Jeff. You've just had an awakening. Your story just changed, and that's a disorienting event. You're asking, what's the hope of trying if in the end it's all going to be destroyed? Is that right? I think what I'm asking is why some of us are trying so hard if the outcome is already written. Yeah, that, that's what I'm asking. It actually feels like a betrayal, Keeper, that device we keep talking about. Oh, no, it's not a betrayal. In fact, all life, as you know, has been entrusted to you. I'd like to offer some perspective on that, Jeff, if I may. So here's where the lenses come into play. Let's talk first about the human-soul connection, the first lens. Souls have already incarnated and more are coming with this purpose in mind. Collectors and preservationists, let's call them. Their role is to see that the things you cherish most about this planet are harvested, catalogued and preserved, just as there are those who are witnessing and recording the extinction of species that are lost every day. And there are hundreds of those, by the way. There are those who are here and more coming, who are planting trees, creating ways of cleaning up the abuse of the oceans, if experienced, and the air as well. This will give the collectors and preservationists more time to do their work. Now, they're not quite mobilized yet. They're still quite entrepreneurial, in fact. And this will change at some point. The window that you've been given is closing soon. Because, as I've said before, we can't smite the ground and produce fully grown humans to do this work. You may start noticing, if you haven't already, that there are some indigo and crystal children showing up. Physicists, 13 years old. Environmentalists, 8 years old. There is the hope of the human-soul connection. And I'll pause in case you choose to respond. All right, continuing on then. There are also souls in place to bring creative solutions for the technology and the transport of life to whatever planet humans choose as their future home, when those searching for solar systems find options to do so. This is something that will require planning. Uh, mobilization again. Can you imagine transporting Earth's population, both humans and other species? Like an ark? 
well, if you will, except more inclusive than the story of only two of each species and clearly organized by the scientific community and not by a voice from the heavens. I understand that you're processing this. I'll just keep going, Jeff. Now for the second lens, the environment. Well, that's pretty much the variable in this equation, isn't it? However, there are actions being taken in the environment, such as farming phytoplankton, which already generate more than half of your world's oxygen. If your ocean temperatures rise six degrees Celsius, phytoplankton will stop producing oxygen. So a backup plan here seems to be essential. The idea of phytoplankton farms isn't a new one, it's finding the balance. The balance of oxygen in your world is part of that sacred geometry we talked about, because producing too much oxygen would have the same devastating effect of producing too little. Oh, and here's a warning that wants to come through me right now. Whoever controls water on the planet controls humanity and the planet. And as we've discussed, some young souls are already buying up the water, knowing its future value. Mobilization is essential here to keep water free and available to everyone protecting it and not selling it for profit. And that's a specific warning, as I understand it. Just let me know that you've heard me on that. Yes, I hear you. And we've got to protect the water, especially. You must clean the air and the water and not upset the balance. The environment will find its own way to restore the sequence if you don't. And that may not include us. That's what I'm hearing, Keeper. What about the third lens, evolution? No, evolution. Learning to live with less and less oxygen is not an evolutionary option for humans. Well, those humans who currently live at high altitudes, such as Tibetans and Andeans and Ethiopians, they are genetically disposed to require less oxygen than those humans who live at sea level, but it took them thousands of years to evolve. And even so, it was considered an extraordinarily rapid evolution. And this is what troubles me, because 84 years is not enough time for any evolution. No, it's not. Your evolutionary steps will most likely begin when you become space travelers, refugees in search of survival and safety. Uh, ironic, that last statement, isn't it, given the discourse on the subject of refugees and immigrants? The adapting that you'll all require will likely be about adapting to your new environment. Bottom line, we need to be here long enough to affect all that change you've talked about. Well, it's been handed to you, to humankind, to take yourselves and all life to its next evolution. So when you ask, why are you trying if everything's going to be obliterated? My answer is that it's exactly why you're trying, because you're the only ones who can do it. And I wonder how we'll do that. For example, will we bring the bigotry and separateness with us? Will that be how those in power and control decide who lives and who dies? I find that I have a personal hope that you'll recreate the beauty you have here on Earth without the bigotry and separateness because by then your evolution will have progressed to a multinational race of humans with multi-gender stories. You will be more acceptable to the other life forms in the universe. You'll be seen as a benevolent species instead of a predator. I see. I don't know if I've eased the pain of this disorienting event, and I'm hoping you'll want to join the conversation about why some of you try so hard, even if the outcome isn't what you hope for, or even if you'll never get to see the outcome legacy work, if you will. I get that my job, well, any of us who are working towards a more compassionate and sustainable world becomes even more critical in light of what you've told us today. I get that. I guess I always thought we'd make it. Well, you can make it, Jeff. The choice is there. It's an evolution of epic proportion and humankind is up to the task, no matter how cynical or hopeless you all feel right now. 
Keeper, do we have a choice about the sun's demise? I mean, who knows what hasn't been thought of yet by your scientists? In a billion years or even 84 years, perhaps our world, our nations and government, they might collaborate. I don't know. Maybe we'll take all the nuclear weapons on Earth, find a way to use them to refuel the sun so it lasts for another 100 billion years, for example. Well, good thought, except that adding nuclear fuel to the sun will actually cause it to burn out even faster. Your sun is a nuclear fusion being, turning hydrogen nuclei into helium. Perhaps if you hope to recharge the sun, you'll find a way to take away a lot of its hydrogen so it burns more slowly and lasts longer. Although that's not without the potential side effects of reduced light and heat output. You'll have to be careful not to create a permanent ice age on Earth. But there are years to go and more souls to come. The story is yet to be written. Not sure I have a choice. So creating from everything you've told me, I do choose to create positively and with hope. So, write that story, Jeff. You and those who are listening, and those who are not, and who are yet conscious of the values you spoke of earlier, you all get to write it. The universe awaits your pen to paper. It awaits your voices. I'm aware that this is a much more sobering conversation than we usually have, and there's nothing more I think can think to say. It feels complete to me, for now. And to me as well, Jeff. Although there is one more thing I want to say. Your legacy work, knowing what you must do in your lifetime, even though you may not ever see the outcome, that is soul's purpose at work. We've had the conversation that your generation may not be the solver of all problems, that you may be the awakeners. And that's a very big job, by the way. And that's all I want to say for today. Keeper, thank you, as, as always. You give us much to consider and many sleepless creative nights, I think, too. I'm glad you added creative because you get to choose how you lose sleep. Will it be over that which you believe you cannot control? Or will it be figuring out what you can control? So thank you for the space in which to offer perspective, Jeff. I see this will probably be our last conversation for some time. What? Why? Well, I've offered what I came to offer. Now it's up to you. But there's more to say. There's always more to say, and we'll have a chance to say it, just not now. I think some silence and some reflection and activations required. I'm going to miss this, Keeper. As I will, Jeff. You've been a formidable human and I've enjoyed our conversations. Yeah, me too. And listeners, thank you for being here with us on Voice of Evolution Radio. As always, we value your comments and feedback. So send us your thoughts to jeff at voiceofevolutionradio.com or linda at voiceofevolutionradio.com. We're here and we're listening right back. Go out there and create conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. Until next time, whenever that is. Linda? Yes, Jeff, I'm here. Um, uh, Let me close the program and then we can talk. Cueing music. And boy, will we talk. 